3: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast.
2: I'm Jay Elwes, the producer, and I'm here to bring you your weekly dose of politics. It's actually quite an interesting question to look at whose Brexit policies actually softer now, Labour or the Tories. And culture. Trump treats them as if they are auditioning
3: for a process, like he is the, the theatre director. And this week, we meet the artist Stephen Collins, who's been doing the prospect cartoon these many years. How do you find humour in an era that's so often beyond satire? But
4: you can't deny with him that there is, a, there is a large part of him which is just absolutely
3: ridiculous. So, we'll come to that later, but first I'm here with uh, Samir Rahim, our culture expert, and also Alex Dean, who's our chief politics watcher and Alex, you've been following Brexit for all these months, these years even. Um, Now it looks as if the politics are beginning to undergo a real change.
2: That's right, Jay. We're coming to the crunch now, I think, uh, and Labour conference is just round the corner. I think what's really interesting, particularly about that conference, is the pressure that the leadership are coming under to come out in favour of a second vote. They've long been stuck between a rock and a hard place. They want to come out for a second vote, the members are overwhelmingly leaning in that direction. Corbyn's whole selling point is meant to be that he is a voice for the members. Indeed, when his parliamentary party voted no confidence in him, and yet didn't retain the confidence of hardly any of his MPs, he stayed on citing the mandate from the members as the reason for that. So it puts him in a very awkward position to go against what the members want on Brexit. On the other hand, there's a lot of Leave voting Labour-leaning constituencies out there and he's trying to keep them on side. It's been interesting to watch the balance between those two arguments for and against swing back and forth. And I wonder whether it's slightly swinging towards the second referendum. Um, Constituency Labour parties get to put forward motions they want formally debated at Labour conference and more anti-Brexit motions have been submitted for this conference than any motions ever submitted to any Labour conference in history. Uh, so I think we can see the direction of travel at least. And why this change now? I think it's a factor of several things. I guess the biggest explanation is the chaos that the government's found itself in. There's a general public awareness, you know, like 85% think that the Brexit negotiations are going very badly, Labour members obviously included. I think there's there's a feeling that if you're going to push for it, now's the time. But do you, th- do you think Corbyn...
3: his mind is really changing like you know the upper echelons of the Labour Party or do you
2: think they're just they're continuing with their policy of constructive
3: ambiguity on this
2: one? I think constructive ambiguity is exactly the right term to describe what Labour have been doing. Um, They've been awkwardly but to a degree successfully positioning themselves in the middle so they've been... uh I think Labour policy now is is in favour of a customs union, so that's slightly more remainy than the Tory position, but they haven't gone full remain, they're still not in favour of the single market. It's actually quite an interesting question to look at whose Brexit policy is actually softer now, Labour or the Tories, since the checkers meet. I think actually Labour's position probably is a bit softer, and that's how they've been positioning themselves.
0: Samir. Do they think that there's any votes in being softer on Brexit? Because they're about three, four percent Behind in the polls, um, and I wonder whether they feel like there's this whole tranche of pro-European votes um, that they could they could hoover up if they move a bit more uh, in the soft Brexit direction.
2: I think there's probably two things I'd say in response to that. The first is that I I reckon they do think there's some votes there, um, and that calculus has been changing as the months have passed, as we see the polls shifting very slightly maybe towards remain definitely not a definitive shift but what is interesting is the marked shift in leave voting labor constituencies it seems like you see slight wobbles in the polls but it's all within the margin of error and you don't get any definite turn towards remain in terms of the public as a whole it does seem though that when you break it down and look at individual constituencies Labour leave constituencies are the most likely to have turned, which definitely is going to be factoring in the leadership's thinking. You know, going back to something Jay said earlier, I think the question of Euroscepticism in the Labour Party is really interesting. And I think that it's got obviously a a strong history and Tony Benn, uh, you know, and against the common market and so on. I think, though, that what we've seen with Corbyn is that he can be a ruthless political operator when it matters. And if he sees the opportunity to bring down the government, uh, if he sees the tides turning. The last thing I'd say is that the TUC have started to look like they're coming out in favour of a second vote too. At least they're softening in that direction. And that's going to be factoring in his thinking as well. And then over this weekend we had Emily Thornberry, uh Labour front bencher, who
3: was reported as saying that the Labour Party would vote down any deal that the government presented it with. Now that that sounds like a, a really kind of extraordinary and ruthless position to adopt. Does does that fit with your reading of
2: Corbyn and his inner circle? Thornberry's a really interesting one, isn't she? Um, Because she she doesn't quite fit as neatly into a camp as some Labour politicians do. She's slightly difficult to pin down. I think that I would identify that as part of the same trend. I think if we hit a real parliamentary gridlock, the idea of extending Article 50, getting the time to put down the legislation for a second vote, you know, it, it provides that opportunity as much as it does the opportunity to lead to no deal for the Brexiteers. I think parliamentary gridlock, both those things come back on the table. The idea that there could be a second vote, but also the idea that there's a no deal. So it's a high stakes gamble. But I think Thornbury is probably thinking that if Labour votes down the government's deal, if there's enough Tory rebels too, maybe that will open the space for a second vote. The thing I would say is that sometimes politicians set out tests. Famously, Gordon Brown set out his tests for joining the euro. And sometimes those tests kind of seem designed never to be met. Labour has laid out these tests for the standard that the government's Brexit deal would need to meet in order for Labour MPs to vote for it. And one of the things on that test, to pick just one, and there are lots of things I could have picked, that will never be met, is Labour wants the deal to guarantee all the benefits of staying in the single market without being in the single market. Now, without even getting into the politics, that's just logically, you know, actually impossible. So I think, really, Labour was always going to vote against the government's deal, although it's interesting to see Thornberry openly come out and say it.
3: Well, Alex, thank you. So from the logically impossible, we turn to a completely different subject, Donald Trump and the books that have been uh, published recently about him, most notably uh, by Bob Woodward the uh, very famous uh, U.S. investigative reporter. Samir has been looking into those. Samir? Over the weekend, I
0: had plenty of books that I needed to read, um, but somehow I kept on flicking back to my phone uh, and the PDF of Bodwood Wood's uh, Trump book, which is called Fear. <laughs> <coughs> to the point. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely to the point. Um, I think it sold something like 750,000 copies in its first week, um, following up on Fire and Fury, Earlier this year, um, which also sold a, a, a heap load, and it got me wondering: Why are we addicted to reading about Trump? What is it about him as a personality? He's such an outlandish creation. You know, Philip Roth couldn't have come up with a better, uh, a better fictional persona. And I wonder whether that might give us a clue as to why people voted for him in the first place. So maybe it wasn't economic insecurity or racial resentment or all the other sociological reasons that people have come up for, for why people would vote for Trump. Maybe it's simply because when it came to the 2016 election... The thing that would really, you know, the cliffhanger at the end of the series, if Hillary Clinton had won, it would have been, well, we just go back to normal. But if Trump wins, we've got a whole other season of this, four more years. When I was watching the election result with uh, an American friend who was absolutely, you know, I mean, literally in tears, um, I was, you know, shocked, surprised, disapproving, all the rest of that. A little bit of me was like rubbing my hands, though, at the thought of what was going to happen. Trump is an extraordinary character. I mean, even in, in his um, persona, he's just so funny. I mean, we were in the office the other day and I was looking at a clip on YouTube. Um, and it was of Trump trying to get through to the Mexican uh, president to discuss the trade deal. And it was about a minute and a half and somebody had, had, had put the veep closing credits music over what he'd been doing. And if you got an actor, you know, Alec Baldwin could not have timed <laughs> that with better comic precision. And I think he kind of knows he's funny as well, Trump. He's a lot more self-aware about his own humorous uh, charisma, if you see what I
2: mean. Then we give him credit for you
0: think? Yeah. And, I mean, funnily enough, in Bob Woodward's book, there is, um, apparently Trump prints out his best tweets and looks at them in incredible detail to see which one of them, uh, one of, which one of them has succeeded uh, the most? Um, I think he also described himself as the Ernest Hemingway of 140 characters. Um, so he he obviously takes a, a a keen interest in his own sort of uh, self image and, se- and self promotion. And I think I just wonder whether it might give us a clue as to why we get why we get to the end of Trump really, because already it's feeling slightly exhausting and it's kind of you know getting less. Uh, less amusing. But the more it runs and runs, people might just get bored of him um, and decide to pull the plug at the next election. Maybe that's our hope.
2: Narrative exhaustion. (laughs) It's becoming almost predictable, which seems ridiculous. You know, it doesn't even surprise you anymore.
0: Maybe it's a reflection of the American public's essential faith in the democratic system that they felt like they could elect someone for the sheer entertainment of it and a system would just hold them in place.
3: One of the things that, as you'll hear later, I've gone to speak to Stephen Collins about, is how the Trump presidency has been weirdly episodic. So there have been, you know, last week it was uh, the mystery op-ed in the New York Times. And then other weeks have been, you know, the the porn star who's made allegations in court against him. But it has that sort of Netflixy kind of feel about it, doesn't it? Um, is there anything in Woodward's book that suggests a reason for this? Partly it's to do with casting, because Trump treats
0: his the people he hires, as as Woodward explains, um, uh, when he when he goes. And he tries to select them, he he treats them as if they are auditioning for a process, like he is the the theatre director. So he uh, wants his generals to always wear the uniform, not to wear $100 suits, as they accused Mattis of of wearing. Of course, Steve Bannon was a a Hollywood producer, not a very successful one, but he certainly was. And he he certainly thinks of himself as, I don't know, Trump's fool, as it were, or sort of his Machiavellian advisor. in in the corner um, whispering in his ear and I think he he attracts these extremely odd characters around him um, because he is so odd himself and whoever did the New York Times op-ed whether it was Mike Pence or whatever by the way that was quite an interesting example that New York Times op-ed of um, the values of literary criticism so, you know, when I was studying university, practical criticism, you've got to look for the details of every single word and all the rest of it. The fact that uh, the word lodestar became, which was used in the, um, in the article, became an example of, um, well, of course, mike it's Mike Pence. You know, yeah, yeah. we all know it's Mike
2: Pence. People were picking out individual words yeah, that they associate yeah. with certain political and figures. And what
3: does lodestar mean? Did you look it up?
0: Uh, doesn't it mean um, something to which you're instinctively attracted know, sort of a centre point. I might be completely wrong at this point, actually. but Write uh, in. Yeah, write in. Please do correct me. Tweet in. Tweet in.
3: <laughs> Samir Rahim and Alex Dean, thank you very much indeed. And now it's time to go over to the week's main event. I'm here with Steve Collins, who is an illustrator and an artist and a cartoonist who has uh, been producing brilliant work for Prospect magazine amongst others for years now subject-wise for prospect you've uh, I mean you've covered a huge gamut of different subjects the one that you've returned to more often than not recently and the one that you did in our last issue was Donald Trump he's kind of cropped up in your strips a fair old bit recently still not
4: quite worked out how to draw him he's
3: he's quite for somebody who should be so drawable
4: he's he's quite um slippery the sort of routine take on it is is that he's uncaricaturable because he's he's a caricature of himself. I've kind of been through that a bit now and now i'm he is i'm finding him more funny and i mean obviously it's like an absolute you know it's not remotely funny what's going on in America at the moment but I'm kind of obsessed with it and um I uh pay probably a lot more attention to American politics than I do to British. Um and uh, I I find him I'm finding I'm sort of making peace with drawing cartoons about him now. I'm finding him you know more more doable because he was difficult to do at first because you know the, the, it was there was a fairly common conception And I think it was true that he was so it was so ridiculous, and he was so out there that he it sort of rendered any sort of satire kind of redundant, really. And I think that was true for a while. I think I think we've gone through that a bit now. And this, uh, you know, I I did him last month for Prospects, and I I don't know if I can do him again because you know in a month's time because we have a month's uh, lead time with the with the magazine, don't we? Mm. And um, there's just too much to do about him in in any given month. And so uh, I don't know if I can do him again this week. But at the, the time of recording, I mean, at the time people listen to this, he'll probably have started a nuclear war or something. But at the time of recording, we're in the,
3: the New York Times um, Secret Resistance op-ed. It's interesting what you say about how in the beginning you had this kind of feeling like someone like that would be almost beyond satire. Mm. Have you kind of come full circle on that to a point where now you are more confident that actually he's just like any other politician who can be poked with a stick?
4: You have to be careful saying that you find him funny or you find it funny because it's really not funny what's going on. And I really is terrifying to think that there will be you know a point at which he is really tested you know god forbid some sort of big attack or something like that or or, or you know w- whatever might crop up but you can't deny with him that there is a there is a large part of him which is just absolutely ridiculous and the 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 trick as a cartoonist is to sort of take what is so ridiculous and try to make a joke out of it. it is quite difficult I mean, he is—you know—he has caricatured himself before you even get to him. So you're kind—you of, f- you feel a bit like you're stating the obvious. <laughs> but he—he—I mean—he is just funny. There is a funny—you cannot deny. However serious things get, you cannot deny that there is a hugely ridiculous, you know, element to him. Um, you know, just just the way he just—he's so thin-skinned, and this reaction to the the gutless op as he called it. <laughs> it's just so comically thin-skinned. Most presidents would have just hunkered down, you know, d- just uh, dismissed it. And he's, like, straight out there in front of the
3: press, kind of going... You know, he just can't stop himself. He's all surface, isn't he? I he suppose? is all surface, yeah. yeah. So that's an advantage for you, then, as somebody who is trying to depict him? Yeah, well... Uh, Sort of. I mean, there's Cause all Because you, cause you of, can get at him so directly, can't you? If he was a kind of dark, swirling mass of conflicting and interesting uh, subtexts, and yeah, so on, he'd be he'd be more elusive, wouldn't he? He'd slip from your grasp.
4: I mean, there's all sort of me- sorts of mechanics as to the way people are caricatured or or and caricature themselves. You, you could write an essay about it. Really, it's sort of it's partly to do with the way people project themselves into the world and um their blind spots you know when somebody has projected themselves (laughs) quite so nakedly in his public persona i mean he is just all all insecurity isn't he there's there's ways of doing trump even in this crazy era that we're in brexit i find less easy to do because i find it i find it all a bit more kind of too close to home a bit more depressing i'm a remainer But not all of my family are. And, you know, it all feels a little bit too close to home, Brexit. It's all ugly and gross. And obviously the situation in America is very ugly and gross. But it's like, it feels like I know these... These characters that are in the Brexit drama, and I, I find it hard to find humour in Brexit. Also, it's so, so such a slow burn. The ridiculous thing about Brexit today is the same as the ridiculous th- thing about Brexit in 2016, and it hasn't got any less stupid, and it hasn't got any more funny. You know, yeah. <laughs> whereas the Trump, the Trump administration has been falling apart. The wheels have been falling off with such spectacular you know, exponential increase in drama that, I mean, it's very American. It's like a really great TV show, I'm and afraid. And also, it's,
3: w- yes, exactly. I was about to say the Trump um, cataclysm has been weirdly episodic, hasn't it? Yeah, in it's the like way it's that, been written by Netflix. Yes, exactly. But uh, I suppose in contrast to that, the Brexit experience has been more like a sort of old faithful dog being... Led out into a field where it's going to be, you know, shot and buried. You know? Shot really slowly. Yeah. But nothing, nothing has <laughs> <is> sort of, <laughs> like, nothing has happened with Brexit yet. Really, I suppose there's nothing really. That's to
4: get the your thing teeth about into. it. Everything's in potential. Everything is. You know, it just feels like a very depressing swamp of wrong. But you, you often, as a cartoonist, you often end up kind of, am I doing Trump today or am I doing Brexit? You know, it's kind of. So you I try and kind of think myself out of that a bit they just will keep
3: offering jokes up these these politicians yeah they do have a habit of doing that when you're setting out on one of your pieces like what are you trying to do
4: i am trying to make something Thing that works as a little miniature comedy sketch my stuff's always comedy sketches really um the stuff that influences me most is not really cartooning but more comedy comedy specifically sketch comedy and my the one original idea i've ever had in terms of well, it's probably not even that original but like I- in terms of doing my cartoons is i could convince editors to do sketch comedy if i threw enough panels at them and kind of like panels being the kind of the individual pictures of the cartoon. And uh, if I I did that, you know, fairly competently as comedy writing, then they might take that because that's something slightly different to what
3: they were already running, at least in British newspapers that I could see. And it's interesting to hear that you say that you're really interested by the sketch show Hmm. history and so on tradition. Uh, Which ones are particularly uh, influential for you? Well, I grew up with... um,
4: you know, sort of uh Brian Laurie and stuff like that. But um more and, and the Far show I remember being a big thing when I was a kid. Um and I remember really loving Harry Enfield when I was young, like a child. Um uh but really I mean the I, I think my humour really sort of chimes with um like Mitchell and Webb Mitchell and Webb look and uh, the radio show. I remember thinking, Oh, that's that makes sense that I I could have a go at something similar to that. It's not, I'm I'm not quite there yet, but, but I think the the biggest influence on me really was Alan Partridge in terms of comedy. I think, I still think that is the greatest comedy character ever created. Like the one I just filed for the guardian was about, um, was about the secret resistance and the whole Bob Woodward book or whatever, um, in Trump's white house. And, there's just you have a sense of that being funny. I mean, that just is funny. This secret resistance op-ed, just what it, it, I found it hilarious. You know, stealing papers from his desk, and I remember, there's a Peter Cook line in one of his sketches about you know, you know, quite quite often behind the old man's back, we very see, very openly behind our hands have a good titter. You know, it really reminded me of that Peter Cook sketch. You know, you know, titter here, titter there. It all adds up. It really was. That was the essence of the secret resistance, sort of <laughs> pre- pre- predicted by Peter Cook in the seventies or sixties. And it's, um, it's just absurd. So you get a kind of a, a twinge of, oh yeah, that's that's funny. I'll go for that. And then the trick with these, if people really want to know about the nuts and bolts of how I do this, and um, then the trick is kind of, is this still going to be relevant, relevant to prospect readers in a month's time or Guardian readers in like a week and a half's time? I've completely stopped doing The Queen in case she dies in the week and a half before, uh, between completion and publication. And if she is dead when you're listening to this, you know, I'm, I'm, that's awful. Sorry about that.
3: We're sitting here in your studio and I'm looking behind you there and I can see a kind of there's a sort of what looks like a glass and wood screen tilted at an angle of 45 degrees that sort of got bits of paint on it and stuff. Now, what's that? What are we looking at there?
4: That's the light box built by my dad um,
3: on commission.
4: Well, I say commission. It was could you make it for my birthday, please, dad, um, about 10 years ago. He built it out of an old boat um, of his. And it's yeah, I love it. it. I use it all the day, every day, and um, it's just a light with a big perspex screen in it, really. And that's what I draw on. And, and I've got um, I've got a. Uh, I use the computer a lot as well.
3: So you do the original uh, drawings or paintings using that light box there.
4: What I do is I will design the the cartoon in. Uh, Photoshop, then i'll print it out then i'll put it onto this light box put another sheet of paper over it and trace it if i've got time i'll color it on paper but often i will scan the the line work back into the computer color it in the computer um this is a bit of a weird roundabout process and it's large but it's largely because i don't think cartoons look nice if they're um completely computer drawn there's something about the comedy you connect less with the humor of it if it looks too flat and computer drawn I think um I think maybe that's just the tradition of cartooning that I'm used to but I just think things look nicer if they're drawn on paper I think most illustrators and cartoonists nowadays have a mix of kind of traditional techniques and computer techniques which they use and uh, it's a question of finding the mix that you're most comfortable with
3: do you think the cartoon is still sort of quite respected as a medium in Britain?
4: There, there is a sense of the whole satire is dead thing, especially in the era of Trump. I'm coming back to it again, but um, uh, it, it it does. You do get a sense that the the, um, the most effective satire is Sacha Baron Cohen type stuff that probably has more impact than your average cartoonist. but He's quite I,
3: extreme, isn't he? He almost becomes a participant.
4: Yeah, yeah. I, there's a lot... I mean, there's different ways to genuinely humiliate politicians. That obviously, you know... I mean, cart- I, I am under no illusions that cartooning is not really going to change anything. <laughs> um, but I don't think that was ever really the point of it. I mean, I don't want to do political cartooning down i do think it's effective in kind of caricaturing people and, and reduce uh, uh you know and pointing out where they are ridiculous but um i've never i've never really felt that it was um the uh most you know dangerous thing to be doing often you the biggest effect you'll have a polit- on a politician is often they you know they want to buy a copy of it which is a real insult really because it means actually i i i mean there's been a couple where i i'm sort of aware that the politician probably is is aware of what i've done and that's quite satisfying i think i think it's more noticeable with um with uh when you've got the big kind of political cartoonist in the papers i I think people really do still pay attention to those, and there's a lot of respect for those and you know you go back through the history of it where you know the way John Major was caricatured i I think you know that really probably did affect especially on spitting image that really did affect the way the public thought thought about him, and I think it is still respected in 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 a certain way like that. When did you first start drawing? Um, I first started drawing as um, well, far as early as I can remember, really, probably four or five. I mean, I tried doing a graphic novel when I was about 10 or 11. <laughs> How <laughs> did it was, go? Yeah, I got about four pages in. What was it about? It was about an albatross that wanted to escape from the zoo. Um, Do they have God, albatrosses no. the zoo, so? uh, I think he zoo? Fl- no, the albatross flew it uh, Basically, the reason I did an albatross was because I thought I could call it Albert Ross. <laughs> And I thought that was a good joke, and then I basically was kind of chained to this albatross character, and so I had to look up albatrosses in my like <laughs> in my like little kids' encyclopedia. <laughs> I got about five pages in um yeah, the moral of this is, is if you're gonna do a graphic novel, then start small, don't try and do
3: a massive great big graphic novel before you can run before you can walk now your first graphic novel was. The Giant Beard Which Was Evil. Is that right?
4: Yeah, uh, that, was, that was a long time ago now. And mm. I published that um, in 2013. It's a uh, book with a silly concept and a silly title. That the, the basic idea of it was to have a silly concept and a silly title with, um, and w- with sort of subtext which weren't silly at all. Now with this new graphic novel, I'm, I really know what I'm doing a lot better. And it's much more me, like I look back on my first graphic novel and I'm like, it doesn't really look like my work at all, really. And it's certainly not something that I'd make now. Um, the
3: graphic novel is a very interesting form. It it does, it, it, it has a very sort of, I'm thinking of things like Mouse, for example, then also the Sandman graphic novels and so on, which have this very odd combination of on the one hand this sort of slight sense of take this the wrong way but naivety Mm. in in i mean that in the artistic way like mouse for example was drawn in a really kind of straight flat kind of a way Mm. with incredibly affecting um psychological atmosphere and so on they they have a kind of texture and a a feeling all of their their own don't they
4: yeah i mean the the art i've always liked most i think in any form whether it's musical or film or anything is something that seems fairly frothy and pop on the surface but actually is there's a lot more to it and that is the, almost the definition of cartooning really at least as i understand it um and uh the there is i I absolutely adore it i uh, uh i love the kind of you know the more simplified a character i think visually the more you can do with them because they become a sort of avatar for the reader the reader response theories that you get with literature are all kind of you know similes and metaphors are kind of the uh, where the the writer um, will give you a little bit of space to imagine something when you're reading um, reading a piece of prose text you can't do that with a cartoon because everything is drawn and you're showing everything so you never use a simile or metaphor to describe a sunset or anything you just draw it but where you do have imaginative space for the reader of a graphic novel is in the simplicity of the illustrations and it becomes um so you can do a round face character with two dots for eyes and that becomes a projection almost of the person who's reading its emotions i think um and in that simplicity, though it does look childish, it, there is a really, you can have a, quite a bit of power as a writer to um, engage a reader. I think the more you draw, the more you overdraw things in a cartoon, in a comic or a graphic novel, the, the less engaging it gets, which is why mouse works so well, because they're these, like I say, they're just avatars, they're little mice. That are representing the horrors of the Holocaust, and um, they are very empathetic. Um, if he'd drawn very, very detailed human-looking characters, it just wouldn't have worked as well. Um, so that's the that's the um, that's what I love about cartooning. It looks very childish, but actually, it's very empathetic. It's very. Um, um, engaging it's very expressive and it's a great way of communicating to adults as well as children you know um
3: is there still a bit of cultural snobbishness that goes up against the graphic novel do you think
4: yeah absolutely um and i can sort of understand it really because there's people associate it with like weird male power fantasies expressed through superheroes which go straight to massive blockbuster movies so you know what's not to poke poke a sneer at you know like it's it's a huge part of our culture it's not like graphic novels are the underdog in a lot of way they're portrayed i mean they they make the biggest selling movies in the world and you go to a graphic novel section in a bookshop and it's mostly like kind of superhero stuff and i don't want to be sneery about superhero stuff because you know i i'm pretty ignorant of it i don't read much of it and there's a lot of really great writers in it a lot of great artists but it's like i think that is people's perception of it a lot of the time that it's quite kind of um limited to that because a lot of that gets sort of um shoved in with all the mouse and the 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 non superhero stuff, I suppose is the best way to call it.
3: What are you doing for the next one then?
4: I don't know. I don't know. Because I'm kind of um I'm still we're a couple of days off deadline, aren't we? And um yes. I'm yes <laughs> <laughs> This why he's been sent to interview me to kind of it, lock the doors until he's until he's uh, produced one. It's always a bit of a a bit of a juggle because especially at the moment the news is changing so much with prospect i do often kind of take it to a very late stage because then you're going to know much better close to deadline what's going to be around in a month's time which is when a lot of readers will still be you know coming to it fresh i i I don't know i i'm really my head's in trump land at the moment my head's in this this crazy Bob Woodward book and everything and I, I, I'm i just obsessed with it and I have to I'm, I think maybe I should eat my greens and have a look at breaths again <laughs> it feels like it sometimes it feels like there's just too much though and often Twitter gets to it first the quickest satirist this uh, the quickest satire these days is always Twitter and everybody's made the best jokes within usually about five minutes of something big happening it's like a absolute flash mob of satire as soon as anything happens isn't it and you know what it has shown is that it's not just the writers of spitting image or the cartoonists in private eye that are good at this stuff like everybody is very funny on my timeline the great thing about what i do for me is that i can do a whole comedy sketch and i can without having to hire any actors i can do very improbable sets i can do special effects i can do all sorts of things with it just being me it's kind of a megalomaniac uh, writer's dream really and i get the credit for it My, my name's at the bottom of it which is most writers for sketch comedy don't get get that um so it's great really i'm very happy with this weird little corner of the cartooning world that i've designed for myself
3: um even though it is quite difficult to do steve collins thanks very much indeed thank you very much it was an absolute pleasure That was Stephen Collins their Prospect's long-standing cartoonist. And you can see his next piece for us in the October issue. The cover piece is all about the Donald's favourite website. That's Twitter. But what's it doing to us? Anyway, get a copy to read all about it. Or if you prefer, visit our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk. So be sure to keep an eye out for all that. I'm Jay Elwes. My thanks to Alex Dean and Samir Rahim. Uh, here in the studio and as I mentioned you can see Stephen's latest cartoon as well as essays on the arts on politics and on culture at prospectmagazine.co.uk and while you're there you might notice that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable so be sure to tune in again next week to the prospect podcast